This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 24. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands upon you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth, And wrath against the people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would show us your truth from your word, that you would point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would seek him with all our hearts, all our minds, 
all our souls. This we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Have you had the feeling recently as you watch the news or read magazines that now is just a particularly bad time to be alive? That it seems that so much is going on and so much is changing so quickly and so many things are going badly for the church of Jesus Christ that it would have been far better or easier to just live in a different age and time. Our passage this morning is here to give you help with that. Because you see, our Lord Jesus Christ is warning us that this is normal for the church. That there are times of struggle and persecution and difficulty throughout all of history. There may be times when it is lesser or more pronounced. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ goes on. And this morning Jesus speaks to his disciples and to you and to me to give us help as we look at the signs of the times. Jesus speaks in two distinct and helpful voices for us this morning. First, he brings us a prophetic warning. As God's true prophet, he brings to us a warning. And then secondly, as the great shepherd of his sheep, he brings to us pastoral counsel. Pastoral counsel in the midst of our trials and concerns. So this morning we see a prophet and a pastor in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin then by looking at Jesus and his warning. The warning comes about the end of an age. Now, in the days of the disciples living in Jerusalem, there was a great deal to be concerned about. If you think that our lives are challenging and difficult, it was very similar in the first century in Palestine. For you see, there was political machinations, occupation, freedoms and liberties being restricted. There were very heavy taxes being laid on the people. A great deal of money was taken out of this nation. And as a matter of fact, these taxes and this money was being taken from the Jewish people to be used against them by the Roman government. It was a challenging time to live. But it was more than just about money and about power. In this day and age, there was a great decadence in society. Here in this time, there was a flurry of immorality. There were Homosexuals ascendant. Divorce was everywhere. Abortion and infanticide was commonplace. There was a great deal of immorality. It seemed that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And perhaps the most difficult thing for people like the disciples and you and me to understand is not only was there political unrest, not only was there moral immorality... But there was, it seemed, a complete ignorance of the people of God to recognize the old ways. 
They didn't want to go back to the old ways of following God and His Word. They were just ignored as being out of date and out of touch. And you know how frustrating that can be when you actually understand what the right thing to do is from God's Word and no one is interested in hearing about it. It's a great challenge. And so Jesus gives a warning here to His disciples. For they come to Him in verse 5 and they describe the temple that they see. It's as if they're concerned and nervous and they look and they're almost soothed by the temple. Because you see, another great problem of the people in Israel was where they put their trust. They put their trust in two things we see in the Gospel of Luke. The first thing we see is they put their trust in planning and in scheming. It's all over the pages of the Gospel. The Pharisees and the Sadducees plotting how they will manipulate the Romans, how they will manipulate the people, what laws they will try to pass, how they will try to balance society. And anyone that gets in the way of their carefully laid plans needs to be moved out of the way. Even, and especially, Jesus. Isn't it the story of much of the Gospels? How people complain that Jesus is getting in their way, That they're trying to save the day and Jesus is messing things up, causing difficulties. And if we're not careful, that could be you and me. Because you see, we like to plan and scheme too, don't we? We like to understand what laws we think should be passed. Or what priorities the church should undertake. Or the way in which the church of God can be preserved from a coming catastrophe. And it involves a delicate balancing act. We want to speak the truth. We have to make sure we're not too true. So we don't speak about truth without at first using the word winsome. But we have to make sure we're not too just lackadaisical about the truth. And so we have to have a hard edge at some times. There's a balancing act in the church and in society. There's a second thing that the people in this day were trusting in. And that was what they could see. Now, for the people of God here, that was personified in the temple. You can see even the disciples looking and talking to Jesus and saying, Can you see that temple? Isn't that a piece of work? Now, to understand this, you have to understand what the temple was like. This is a day and age in which most people lived in homes made out of mud or of straw. There were not five-star homes. And yet the temple was this massive building made of marble and gold. As a matter of fact, the temple was so overlain with gold, it was said that if you approached it from a distance in midday and tried to look at it, you would have to turn your eyes away like you were looking at the sun because there was so much gold and reflection. And if you approached it at a different time of day, it might look like a great snow-capped mountain because there was so much expensive marble involved in this huge building that it looked like a mountain of snow. And you see, this is also where people put their trust. 
It was huge in size. It was an obvious presence of God. It was 46 years in the rebuilding, we're told in the Gospels. And it would not be finished yet for another 30 years. It wouldn't be finished until 63 A.D. And the finished product would only last seven years. But you see, for the people of God, it was something they could see and point to and touch. And that gave them comfort and security. And again, if you and I are honest, we're no different. We like large churches, don't we? We like to hear stories of thousands of people professing faith in Christ. We like to hear about large mission works on continents. We take comfort that God is with us and that we are safe and secure because of the things that we can see and touch and hear. But Jesus gives us a stark warning. It's the same warning that he gives to the disciples here in verse 6. Look with me if you would. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another. Now you have to understand how absolutely impossible that sounds. The foundation stones of the temple, some of them were as large as the boxcars that you see large trains pulling. They are measured in yards, not inches. It's huge and it's massive. How could anyone possibly do anything to this work? But you see, what Jesus is doing here is he is giving them and us a warning of the coming judgment of God. And the coming judgment of God does not take into consideration our thoughts, our needs, or what we think is impervious. It's what God will do in his work. And that's why in the midst of this, even though this passage is really talking specifically about the temple and the destruction of it, In the background behind it is the end of the world. It's all of the ends that we think and see. It's the destruction that comes with the judgment of God. This prophecy would be fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, one of the most horrific things history has ever seen. As the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem, and when the walls were finally breached, it was said that the living envied the dead. As the older citizens lay dead in the streets, as children lay dying of starvation, as the entirety of the population was killed or sold into slavery, the judgment, the wrath of God was fearful. Jesus is warning his people that there is an end coming to this age, an end coming because of Jerusalem's rejection of Jesus. And at this end, there is then also the start of a new age coming. Everything is about to change. Everything that everyone had thought about with respect to religion would be gone. It would no longer be centered in Judea. There would no longer be a temple in Jerusalem. There would no longer be sacrifices. There would no longer be a veil. Everything that every person who had claimed the name of God, who read his or her Bible, everything that they thought meant that God was present and solid in their lives would all be swept away. Everything changed. 
But in another sense, everything stayed the same. Because you see, the old age was swept away and a new age came. When the people of God were not confined merely to Judea and Palestine, but were found all over the world. And where there was no need for a physical temple because the church of the living God became the temple of God and you no longer needed to go to a place to pray. You could find the Lord in your presence wherever you were. You see, when we see change in the world, we wonder how the church will survive. And what Jesus is telling us is the end is coming, but the church will always survive. The end has come many times, hasn't it? We've seen people decry the end of the church in Europe, in the Middle East, and now here in America. But no matter what, Jesus' purpose remains. The gospel continues to go forward, and the gospel continues to strengthen each and every individual believer. You need not fear, Christian, Jesus will not abandon you. Although the end seemed near, Jesus is still in control. And this gospel that strengthens us is the truth of God's word that teaches us that God is sovereign and we are not. And we must, therefore, as Peter says, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He might exalt us. And we are to cast all our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. Our enemy, the devil, continues to roam like a lion, seeking to devour the believers. But we are to resist Him. Be firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings that are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, and after all have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is the work of Jesus, to establish his church in the midst of all trying circumstances. And we actually see this happening in the Bible, don't we? Jesus says, the end is at hand. They will persecute you. They will drag you to the synagogues. They will drag you to prison. They will even put some of you to death. And we see this happening in the book of Acts, don't we? Something new is happening that cannot be stopped. Jesus' predictions of persecution and hatred come true as we see Peter and John standing before both the religious authorities and the civil authorities and declaring that Jesus is king. We see Stephen put to death for standing for the truth of God's word and pointing people to the crucified Christ. We can think about the end, but we must remember that there is a new age dawning, an age in which Jesus is triumphant. And the way that we find stability in the midst of this unstable world is to follow God's word. This is what Jesus tells us. This is actually the nature of prophecy. You see, sometimes I think we believe that what prophecy in the Bible is, is it's some kind of secret prehistory that we are privy to so that we know when things are going to happen ahead of time. But that's actually primarily not what prophecy is about. 
Very often in the Bible, there is a prophecy that has multiple iterations of fulfillments. It is less looking at a period of time, a point on a watch, and more like looking down a mountain range, seeing multiple hills, multiple mounts, and seeing fulfillment over and over and over again in a similar fashion. And we see that here. And God does this because His prophecy is primarily about focusing us on what He is doing, not in giving us prehistory. You see, it's not that helpful for us to know what month in the future something will happen. But once we know God's purpose in history and in our lives, that has real practical import. Because you see, our tendency is to be driven by events, isn't it? What do you feel like when things are going well? You're on top of the world, right? You're blessed. Everything is good. Everything is good. Everything is awesome. Because the kids are obeying, the baby sleeps through the night, and I just had a nice dinner. We tend to judge our own walk with the Lord even by external events. The same is true when things go badly in an opposite way. When things go badly, we think God has abandoned us. When we struggle or have financial difficulties, or when the baby doesn't sleep through the night, we think somehow God is not with us. And you see, what Jesus is telling us is we need not focus on the events themselves. We need to focus on the God of the events. And when we do that, an amazing thing happens. You see in verse 7, after Jesus says, this temple will be completely destroyed. He's described one of the most impossible things in the world. And the disciples look right at him and they say, when, Lord? Don't miss what they've just done. They've looked right beyond the impossibility of the event. And they're trusting Jesus at his word. Jesus says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I have no idea how it would happen. We see this throughout the scriptures, don't we? Would we believe that the sun could stand still? Would we believe that the dead could live? Once we trust the Lord our God, our focus is upon Him and His Word, and we remember His purpose, that He is building His kingdom, not ours. That He is working for His glory, not our comfort. That He is bringing people to Himself. And you see, what Jesus is describing is the backdrop of the purpose of God. It is not the end of His disciples. We are far too quick to try and look to the end of the world. Far too quick to try and find answers. Far too quick to hope that we can escape all of the difficulties that are before us. But beloved, that's not always God's purpose. God's purpose is sometimes for us to live in exile. For us to be hungry. For us to be in pain. For us to be sorrowful. Because you see, God's purpose is not primarily for our comfort and ease. It is for His kingdom and His glory. And we need to remember the word of God and the instruction of God. We need to remember that we are to love God first above all things. That we are to serve God 
and that we are to trust God, no matter what the circumstances tell us. This is a prophetic word from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is as true today as it was in the days before the destruction of Jerusalem. But pastor, you say, Jerusalem did get destroyed. It was really bad. I don't want that to happen to America. I don't want to see bad things happen to the church in America. I don't want persecution and murder and death. What do we do? How could we possibly survive? I tell you to look to Jesus. Because Jesus not only gives us a prophetic warning, he gives us pastoral counsel as well in the midst of trials. He tells us four things. And it's interesting what the first thing is that he tells us. The first thing he tells us is don't be deceived. Now, those of you that have children or have raised children know full well the experience of when your child is distraught, anxious, fearful. And your first reaction almost always is to look at them and tell them what? It's going to be all right. Don't worry. Everything's going to be just fine. Right? And when our children are young enough, they actually believe us. The older they get, the more skeptical they are about everything being all fine all the time. But do you notice that when Jesus' disciples are coming to him and hearing this horrific news, and they say, Jesus, tell us when this is going to happen. Warn us. Jesus does not look to them and say, Oh, don't worry. It'll all be fine. You won't have to go through any of this. See, Jesus is not going to tell us a story for our comfort. There is actually a good bit of American theology that is built around the truth that Americans shouldn't suffer. Our whole idea of when Jesus will return and that Jesus will secretly return to pull out all believers before anything bad happens on earth is built upon the premise that Jesus would never let anything bad happen to us. And it is no surprise that this theology was started and is promulgated by people who have never been to China or the Sudan or India or parts of Africa or places where Christians are set alight like they were in Jesus' day. Where Christians are tortured and persecuted. Families are separated. You see, Jesus does not want to come to you first to tell you, don't worry It'll be all right. When he comes to you first, as he says, don't be deceived. Because being deceived is worse than being persecuted. It's worse than being murdered. Hard times lead us to doubt Jesus, don't they? When things aren't going the way we think they should, they lead us to doubt God's plan, at least for our life. And because of that, hard times can lead us to the wrong answers as we search. And what Jesus is saying is, don't listen to the wrong people. Don't head in the wrong direction. Some of you may recall a man who predicted the end of the world, not once, not twice, but three times. Obviously, none of them successfully. His name was Harold Camping. 
And the second time that he predicted the end of the world, the real problem occurred. Because you see, the worst thing about this was not that some people were fooled into selling all of their earthly goods. They sold their homes and their cars and they quit their jobs because they were sure that they knew the day and the hour that the earth would end. But that was not the worst thing, as bad as that could be. The worst thing was, is that he caused them to go down the wrong path spiritually. When he predicted the end of the world, he told them what they needed to do was abandon the church, to give up on the church, to no longer go to hear the word preached, to no longer participate in the sacraments, to no longer see the fellowship of the people of God. He told them what they needed to do was abandon the people of God and to listen to him. And that's a disaster spiritually. And there are voices in your head right now telling you the same thing. Trying to deceive you. To tell you that your life will be better if you didn't sacrifice giving to God's work. If you didn't waste your time on Sunday morning. If you weren't so focused on an old book. Don't be deceived, Jesus says. There's a second thing that Jesus says. He tells us not to follow after false teachers. He also tells us, don't be afraid. It's interesting, Jesus tells the disciples that the temple will be destroyed. And they say, teacher, when will these things be? Ask yourself, why are they asking Jesus when? Do you think it's so that they can leave and go to a cocktail party and say, you know... I know when the world's going to end. I can tell you exactly when, but maybe only, now it's just between us, we're going to be in the in crowd. Do you think it's to impress others? Do you think it's a mere point of academic interest? You know, like some of us wonder, I wonder how long the world will exist. Oh, it would be helpful to have an answer to that. No. You and I both know why they're asking Jesus. Because they're afraid. They're afraid they'll be there front and center when the world is ending that they'll be destroyed. And you see, what Jesus says to them is not, it will be April 2nd of this year, make sure that you're ready. No, he says to them something deeper and more important. He says, don't be afraid. Because when we're afraid, we can be frozen, can't we? We don't want to undertake risks. We won't work for the kingdom of God. We're hesitant to do anything. We can be panicked and even doubt our own faith. And you see, you have to notice Jesus doesn't answer them specifically. He gives them generalities. He says, you know, there'll be wars. There'll be natural disasters. There'll be pestilence. There'll be false teachers. He only gives them one specific, and that one specific is, don't be afraid, in verse 9. Do not be terrified. For all of these things must happen first. Now, I ask you the question, when was a period in history when there weren't wars? Or when there wasn't pestilence or disease? Or when there weren't earthquakes or tornadoes? You see, the irony is, Jesus is not giving them something that they can say, Aha! We know exactly now. 
What Jesus is doing is giving to them and to you the command that no matter when you live, where you are, which wars you see, which earthquakes come upon you, which hurricanes hit your neighborhood, don't be afraid. No matter what. This word is true in 2015. Don't be afraid. God is still in control. Because you see, that's the backdrop of this, isn't there? It's not that all of these things are happening because the world is spinning out of control and Satan is pulling on puppets. No, these things are happening because God is completely in control and He is bringing His judgment and His wrath down upon those who deserve it. And so no matter what is going on in the world today, you have to understand that God is in control each and every day. The third counsel that Jesus gives to us is that we are to be prepared. Look with me at verse 12. He says, Before all this they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. Now Jesus has gotten personal. It's not just wars out there. It's not just earthquakes and pestilence somewhere in the world. Jesus is saying it's going to get personal even before these things happen. That we will be persecuted. That we will be dragged before the authorities. Now, if we are honest with ourselves, this is what we like least, isn't it? What we like is security and stability. We don't like it when things are out of whack. And what Jesus is saying here is, you're not entitled to permanent security and stability. Don't think you are. And he's not saying that you should go out from these doors and pray, Lord, bring down persecution on us. Please, do not go home and over dinner pray that persecution comes swiftly upon the pastor. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he's saying we shouldn't despair when persecution comes. Because you see, there is a purpose in persecution. There is a purpose in these trials. There is an opportunity we have as the church of Jesus Christ. Every time that you lament that America appears to be coming less and less obviously Christian, there is an opportunity. Why do I mean that? Because when there is hatred for Jesus Christ in society, it makes being a Christian a lot clearer to others. The fellow travelers fall by the wayside. It means if you're going to trust Jesus Christ with everything, people actually see that you trust Jesus Christ with everything. Think about the world. Think about where Christianity is most spectacular in places like countries overrun with Islam. In old communist countries where to say the name of Jesus Christ, to be baptized could very well mean your death. It takes a lot to be a Christian in these kinds of places. And when the world is topsy-turvy, when persecution is everywhere, there are great opportunities For believers in Christ. Because you see, when the world is crazy, there's discomfort in other people's lives. 
Other people today may be pretending that they enjoy not being able to speak freely on college campuses. But really, they're discomforted by it. They may think it's wonderful that you can't tell who's a man and who's a woman. But in reality, they're uncomfortable with it. They may think it's great when the government keeps talking about taking over natures of child-rearing, but they're not. They're uncomfortable with it at their core. And that provides opportunities for those of us who know the living God and know His Word to speak truth to them in the midst of their discomfort, and they will listen. And it provides opportunities to show that we're not just talking about it, but that we live it as well. We show our trust in God. And perhaps most importantly, times of persecution and trial give us an opportunity to be like Jesus. Because doesn't that describe all of Jesus' life? An outcast, one who was put upon, one who was planned against, one who was persecuted and murdered. You see, Jesus is telling us in the backdrop of these end times, be prepared, an opportunity is before you. The last thing that Jesus advises us is to be comforted. I said it half jokingly, but it's very serious. Jesus is not meaning for us to pray for death and persecution to come upon us. He wants his people to be comforted in the midst of trying circumstances. Because if we're honest with ourselves, it's very easy to be discouraged, isn't it? We want our timetable to be met. And the smallest of things can really throw us off, can't they? As I came here this morning, as I am usually want to do, I was driving down the street at about 6 o'clock in the morning. And one of the benefits of being on the road at 6 o'clock in the morning is no one else is. And I knew exactly how long it would take me to get from my house to my office, to have the computer on, and be ready to do my final preparations and prayers. There was only one problem. There was a lot of traffic. I kept seeing cars. And I noticed that every car had a bike rack on it. And as I got closer, I saw not only cars, but a line of cars. And you would not believe how quickly I was thrown off of my game. A minister of the gospel coming to church to prepare to preach. And you would have thought the world was falling apart in my heart. Now, I'm using myself as an example But if I spend some time with you this afternoon, I could use you too, couldn't I? Because things happen in our lives that throw us off. And we're easily discouraged when our wants, when our needs are not met. And what Jesus says here is you need to be comforted. Look with me at verse 18. He says, Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Now, this sounds very weird, because in verse 16, Jesus says, some of you are going to die. Has Jesus not made his mind up? No, I think what Jesus is doing is comparing the physical and the natural in verse 16 with the spiritual in verse 18 and 19. And what Jesus is saying is, he's not saying, you will be spared of all difficulties. 
If a preacher comes to you and says, become a Christian because you will always be wealthy, you will always be healthy, and you will always be happy, do not be deceived. He is a liar. That is not what Jesus says. We are not promised a perfect life. But notice what Jesus does, though. He does not leave us without hope. He tells us to stand firm, because when we stand firm, we cannot lose what has been given to us. Life eternal. Fellowship with the living God. What Jesus is saying, in effect, is the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. As you go through life, don't worry about the instant moment to the exclusion of everything else. Remember that we are called to persevere to the end and that at the end waits for us the reward of glory. What Jesus is saying is that no one can ever take Jesus from you. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ by faith to take your sins upon himself in his death on the cross, if you have given up trying to make yourself right with God, if you have heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that says, He did, I receive, then no one can take Jesus from you. And in the most trying of circumstances, that is comfort, isn't it? This is how I can't even imagine a man who is a pastor in Nigeria who has his daughter kidnapped from him by Muslim thugs declares to the world that he is thankful to God that she did not deny Jesus before they stoned her. How could he be thankful? Because they couldn't take Jesus from her. And they couldn't take Jesus from him. They could separate them temporally. They could cause suffering and distress, but they could not take his Jesus. Is that your hope in the world today? Because you see, that was the hope of the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 8, as Paul says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He says, Who indeed shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is that view that can have you to look into the abyss of the end of the world and say, I am safe in Jesus. That's what Jesus is calling us to. For when we live like that, then things really change. 
Then the kingdom of God expands. Jesus warns you. There is a judgment to come. It is as sure to come to this earth as it was to Jerusalem in 70 AD. We must be ready. We must be prepared. He warns us. And he counsels us to be comforted. And to use the opportunities that he brings. Are you ready to use the opportunities Jesus puts in front of you this afternoon? This week and this month? Follow your king. Let's pray.